Um, is there a bad rap on pit bulls? <laughs> yes, there is. Oh my god, the dog's gonna eat the baby. I've gotta tell the dog, stop doing that. I've, I've gotta suppress or punish that behavior. And a lot of times that ends up making it a lot worse. Yeah. Hey, Drew here. Before we get started, I'm really excited to tell you about today's sponsor for the show, Fig and Tyler. I see and use a lot of treats in my line of work as a certified dog behavior consultant. And to be honest with you, a lot of them are pretty terrible. That's why I use Fig and Tyler's treats when I'm training dogs. FYI, everyone, they have a generous discount program for pet professionals, and they've established an exclusive discount program for our listeners of this podcast. The treats come in a variety of proteins, pet pro-sized bags that last, and morsel-sized treats that are perfect for training, and just for spoiling your dog. Listen, I've done the research. I've also spent time with the owners of Fig & Tyler. Bottom line, Fig & Tyler's treats embody quality, transparency, and effectiveness. Their treats are made from single-ingredient, USDA, human-grade inspected meat. That aligns with my personal and professional values and helps get me the results I'm looking for in my training and enrichment programs. They're also great for managing weight issues, and it allows me to be very careful with those dogs who have specific allergy concerns and dietary issues. If you're an industry professional, go to the Pet Pros tab on Fig and & Tile and hit Join Program. Put Love Dog in the referral tab so they know I sent you. If you're a pet parent and you want to get your hands on these premium treats, go to figintyler.com, make your selection, put Love Dog in at checkout. You'll receive 10% off your first order. For me, it's peace of mind in a bag. No mystery ingredients, no additives, no fillers. They offer a wide variety of treats like chicken hearts, duck liver, tilapia, beef liver, and goat's cheese. They also offer custom bundles so I can mix things up a bit. I love that about this brand. So I say... Let's treat dogs to the very best with what I believe to be the very best treats. Industry professionals will love the Pet Pro perks. Pet parents will love the smile on their dogs' faces and the special discount program. Please sign up on your website today. You'll be glad you did. Head over to the website now and use promo code LOVEDOG at checkout. F-I-G-A-N-D-T-Y-L-E-R.com. Promo code LOVEDOG. And the promo code's not case sensitive, so don't worry about that. Most importantly, enjoy. Watch those tails wag with delight. Hey, Drew. Hey, Mark. Good to see you and hear you. Yes, yes, yes. This is going to be our fourth episode. And so far, so good, right? We're having a lot of fun with this. I'm so happy with the guests that we've had on so far. I think it's been incredible. And today is far from an exception. Yeah, I'm really excited about this show because I feel like not only is it great, but I feel like it's really important. You know, when we're thinking about love dog, a lot of times it gets a little warm and squishy, but a lot of people struggle with their dog's behavior. And specifically, today we're talking about aggression and we've got a very well-respected professional, Michael Shikashio, who anybody in my world, the dog training world, knows very, very well. And if you don't know Mike Shikashio, I hope by the end of this episode, you're just hungry to learn everything about him and his offerings. He's such a fabulous person and professional, and he's got so many practical takeaways for people that I, I think this is such a fabulous episode. Yeah. I mean, I think according to what you've told me and according to what I've learned about him, he's probably the country's leading expert on aggression, Yeah, on this kind of behavior. So, 
as I said to him, and as I um, will say to you, I think it's a, it's just an honor to have somebody like him on on this show, especially as we're just getting started. Maybe the thing we want to talk about just for a minute is the conversation that we just had with Mike, because I think it was hopeful, yeah. right? We went into a lot of these different aggressive behaviors that a lot of people are going to experience with their dogs, and he's going to help us through that, and he guides us through that. And I think to people that are without hope or just extremely worried about what's going on with their dogs, he will be very helpful. And I think he makes the point, the question was asked about with the spike in adoptions, especially since the pandemic, these dogs come to us oftentimes having been traumatized, having traveled extremely long distances, and they have unique behavioral issues and often it presents in, in aggression. So we talk about that. And then I'll just say, and then you can add to it, one of the most interesting parts of the discussion I felt was the discussion about street dogs, aka streeties. I love that conversation because he makes a very interesting point that there are more dogs that live on streets and don't have owners or guardians than dogs that actually do. And I found that it was like an oh my God moment. I had no idea. If you think about dogs, we have this cultural lens where we think about dogs as pets first versus dogs are a species and they are thriving on every continent on this earth. And we are only talking about pet dogs here. And so when you're talking about something like aggression in domesticated dogs, you really do need to look outside of pet or what we might think of as home dogs to really understand. And and that's why Mike Shikashio is such a fabulous guest is because he is well-versed in both, you know, dogs from an ethological standpoint, as well as like behaviorism. Just to tell our guests a little bit about Mike Shikashio, he's a certified dog behavior consultant like myself. He's the founder of AggressiveDog.com and he focuses on teaching other professionals skills how to successfully work with difficult aggression cases. He's a five-time president of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, of which I am a member and certified through, as well as the Association of Professional Dog Trainers. And I've met Mike uh, over the years at all these conferences for dog behavior professionals, but everything he does comes from such a warm and educational place. I mean, this guy is the expert in the field. Right. There's a wealth of knowledge here. I hope our people just eat up this show and listen all the way through because there's just so many takeaways. Listen up and listen in. It's a great show. Let's do it. I love it. Welcome in. We've got a very special guest today. We've just gone over your complete bio, Mike, but I want you to kind of introduce yourself to our listeners. If they are not pet professionals, they might not know really who you are and where you're coming from. So tell us a little bit outside of your credentials, just a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with working specifically with aggression cases and reactive dogs. Sure. My my start out was fostering dogs. I did a lot of rescue and foster work when I was early on. I had actually a completely different job. It was uh, working at a casino, taking care of high rollers and celebrities coming in. And uh, so it had nothing to do with dogs. But then I was, you know, volunteering for rescues at the time and was having a lot of foster dogs coming in and out of my home. 
And I realized that a lot of these foster dogs had behavior issues and that's why they were being given up on. So they were being surrendered to rescues or being pulled from shelters and they had behavior issues. And one of the issues was aggression or you know low levels of aggression at the time, but this still that was one of the major reasons for surrendering to rescues and shelters. So I thought, what better way to help these dogs than to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues? So that's when I started to take a deep dive into behavior and training and just really went on learning as much as I could about those issues. So that's what started my, um, my foray into dog behavior and working with dogs. And uh, now I'm fortunate enough to travel all around the world and teach other professionals how to work with aggression issues. And the funny thing is, is that I just came back from Chile. I was in the north of Chile in this beautiful desert location area. There's nothing else like it on the planet. It's really this incredible landscape. But there's a lot of free roaming dogs there, tons of free roaming dogs in this little town called uh, San Pedro de Atacama. And it's just think old, old town. Everything's built out of mud and dirt there because it's, you know, it's, it's a very old place in the desert, but just beautiful place. But the first thing I go looking for is dogs. So that's what I guess the listeners can know about me is that instead of going to see the tourist sites when I'm traveling, I'm looking for dogs because I just love the connection between dogs and people and seeing how the culture influences behavior. So yeah. That's that's where I'm at today. <laughs> yeah, I think I heard you say when you interviewed uh, Mark Beckoff on your wonderful podcast that one day you just wanted to put a cohort of people together to travel the world and meet all these kind of village dog populations and these cities stray. So yeah, this is my official proclamation. Sign me up if you ever launch that course. <laughs> okay, let's do it. I love it. So, you know, I've been aware of you and your work for a number of years. I think we met years ago in Connecticut at some APDT conference, which is the Association for Professional Dog Trainers. And you've always been known as like the aggression guy. And I wonder just a little bit about how you got focused on specifically working with aggression, obviously through wanting to help those shelter dogs. But is that kind of the trajectory your career has always been on or did you just move that way because of necessity? I think well, a little bit of both. You know, there's some necessity because nobody was really teaching on it at the time. There's a few well-known trainers that were kind of talking about aggression, writing books, but there was a huge void in the information to really know what to do. So for trainers, we were, as you know, Drew, we were picking books from here and there or maybe attending a seminar, but there's no real central source for that. So I kind of did it out of necessity, but I also liked it because I like people too. A lot of trainers get into this because they don't like people or they're working in a career. They want to leave working with people because people are disappointing them in some ways. So you end up saying, I'm going to just work with animals. But then you realize you have to actually work with people too. And especially with aggression cases, you're mostly working with people. So uh, you know, I have a, an affinity to, you know, talk to people and help people as well. So it was kind of a perfect match. I was like, okay, I can help dogs and people and focus on the aggression side of things. When, when I'm just curious, when you say when, you, when we're dealing with aggression issues, we're mostly working with people. You've heard correct. <laughs> oh, good. Um, <laughs> can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, because it's really... It's helping the people understand what their dog is going through because aggression itself can often be offensive in our society, right? We punish aggressive behavior in humans all the time. So we carry that over into dogs and big misunderstanding, right? 
working with the people to help them understand why their dog is doing what they're doing is first and foremost. So that's why you're almost always exclusively working with the people first. They can first understand why and how to help their dog through training and behavior change strategies and the appropriate ones, because oftentimes they're using inappropriate methods or techniques that are not going to help their dog. So if we don't help the people, then they're not going to be able to help their own dog. So I'm almost getting the sense that in most cases, or in many cases, you can you can clarify, there's hope. The dog can evolve. The aggression can go away. The people and their dog can have a good relationship and the dog can be you know, integrated into the community over time. Exactly. There's always a potential to improve the quality of life for both the dog and the person. And, and that's an important aspect to understand too, is, is that it's not like a light switch where we can say, okay, your dog's biting people. I'm going to flip the switch and do my magic dog trainer thing. And uh, suddenly they're going to be cured. It doesn't work that way. It's just- Wait a minute. The internet lied to me. There's no quick fix. <laughs> yeah. So- it doesn't, it doesn't work out like the TV shows make it seem like it works out to be sometimes. It's it's a journey and it's it's a matter of um, helping each step of the way and just improving quality of life. And with that understanding comes that improvement in quality of life for both the people and the dog. So yeah, it's never just a, a fix, yeah. like a switch. Well, that's right? beautiful, Mike, because, and Mark, what Mike's getting at is that a lot of times when people are struggling with a dog having a display of aggression or reactivity, they're thinking, oh, this is an internal state, like the dog is aggressive versus the aggression being a side effect of all those factors in the environment or something in the relationship or a resource. And that's where somebody like Mike can come in and help them get that understanding to go, oh, this isn't like who your dog is, like their temperament. There's all these different things that are happening that are leading to that behavior presenting itself. So through that educational process that Mike aptly called a journey, they go on this journey together and it's amazing when you see that growth where you're not going into like, quote, cure a behavior. So tell me a little bit about what kind of person it takes to go into that household and how have you kind of refined those skills over the years? I think it's like anything else that someone has to face if they're prepared and they pre they have awareness of what to do if things happen, that can really lower the amount of stress. So I certainly don't want to compare what I do to like firefighters or first responders, but kind of, you know, if you go in with the knowledge and tools ahead of time, like you know what to do when you walk into a house that's burning down around you, somebody that has no skills on how to you know, put out a fire or what to do next is going to panic. They're going to often, I certainly would, I don't know, you know, I don't have firefighting skills. I know the very basics, right? <laughs> so stop, drop and roll maybe, or I don't know. But, and the same thing goes for when you have a dog with, you know, sharp teeth that's lunging at you. If you um, go in knowing what to do or if something bad does happen, but you're also preparing things ahead of time where you don't have to worry about getting bitten or upsetting the dog then you're, it can significantly reduce the amount of stress um, and potential for any kind of danger to happen. So it's the same thing. It's a, it's a matter of preparedness. You have to just prepare yourself, arm yourself with the information. And it doesn't necessarily require like this high level of expertise, just like we can teach basic fire safety or basic first aid to somebody. 
I might, of course, know it at a higher level, but even with my clients, they're going to face like a dog fight breaking out in their home, or maybe their dog does bark and lunge at somebody and it's it's been very embarrassing for them before, or it's, they've been pulled off their feet, the dogs dragged them down or something, or they've been yelled at because of their dog's behavior. Again, I can equip them with the basic level of skills to say, hey, this is what you can do if those things happen. And if they know that, then they're more prepared and they're less stressed if something does happen. So uh, it's the same rule I just apply to myself. Just, just be prepared and just know what to do if something does happen. Then set yourself up so it doesn't happen. <laughs> so I'm curious. It's almost like I want to back up here for a second. When you walk into that household, when you walk into that fire, mm-hmm. I think any professional walks into anything with a kind of philosophy, with an approach that they're going to take going in. And your philosophy and your approach may be different from someone else who does the work that you do. Would you mind getting into a little discussion about your general overall philosophy about dog aggression and how you approach each situation? And I know that you have a very good track record, a lot of success. So I'd love to hear about the philosophy. My philosophy, I think, is always keep the safety of the dog and their person in mind. And I'm not talking just about physical safety. I want them to feel safe with me, meaning I want them to feel like I they can trust me. So I want to create a safe space for them, my clients being able to talk to me and tell me often very private details about their life and dog bite incidents and other things that might be creating the aggression in the home. And I want the dog to feel safe enough to tell me how they're feeling without having to try to bite me, right? So for example, I could just stop you there for one second. Let's say, for example, the dog lives in a home where there's a couple and the couple is having trouble in their marriage, for example. And there's a lot of screaming going on. There's a lot of tension in the household. Yeah. You're talking about those kinds of things that actually affect- a dog the way they would affect the children. Sure. Definitely. And and my job as a good consultant is to allow for that safe space for them to tell me why they might be responding that way to their dog or even to each other. Because let's face it, we often disagree with our partners about how to raise a child or how to raise a dog or how to arrange the furniture or what color right. dishes we're going to get, right? So it's common. And the moment you take sides with one partner or the other, you're going to lose the other one. And so it doesn't set up a safe space for that person to tell you, you know, yeah, I, I scream at the dog or I do this or that to the dog. So you're going in as a neutral. Yeah. It's very important to do that. Okay. It's almost yeah. like in a way you're going in to mediate the situation. Yeah. Hey, you think about it, Mark. If I go in there and let's say you're the client, I'm like, Mark, you're just an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. Shut up. And it's- <laughs> Which is likely to happen, yes. Thank you. <laughs> How are you going to feel about telling me anything else after that point? And it's the same thing right. for dogs. I, I'm not going to do anything to the dog that's going to make them feel unsafe. So I can go in there and do things like, unfortunately, we see on TV or social media, the trainer goes in and starts to really rough handle the dog to uh, putting up air quotes here, put them in their place or you know hold them up with the leash or something like that. It's the equivalent of me doing that to a person who's going in there and saying, don't say anything else. You're an idiot. And the same thing, the dog, don't do that barking and lunging at me, even though you're just trying to say, communicate how you feel. So um, safety is the key word, I think, and not just from avoiding dog bites. It's from making sure people feel safe. 
and dogs. And trust. I, I'm getting yeah. trust as another key, yeah. key word, if you don't mind my adding one. Yeah. Sure. It's, yeah. That's the first thing I go for with the, with yeah. the dogs is building trust. It's amazing. And the clients. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I actually have a little bit of a background in mediation, conflict resolution. Can mm-hmm. you believe that, Drew? <laughs> with all the trouble I caused. <laughs> but I do. And so, listening to you talk about that, I was like, oh, he's actually going into a scenario and he's mediating it. He's a neutral, he's a peacemaker. Well, and this is a skill that Mike not only has himself, but that he teaches. Um, anybody in the dog training world knows who Mike Shikashio is because he is such a presence for teaching other professionals not only these skills, I, I mean, Mike, years ago, I was working with aggression cases and I was thinking about the dog safety and the client safety and I really wasn't putting enough thought into my own safety until I attended one of your workshops. How am I not doing this? Like, I, you know, I have people that depend on me, like I could really get injured. But when you're talking about philosophy, Mark, a big thing you need to understand about the dog training world is there's like everything, there's this divide where people have sort of pick sides of I'm going to go at it with this reactive thing and try to suppress or stop the behavior or I'm going to go over here from this super light and fluffy and try to, you know, make everybody feel good. And and what we see, and I don't remember who, who said this, Mike, but I, I always feel like somebody said that somebody coming from more of a compulsion or corrective background goes in there and they team up with the owner and it's like them against the dog. Versus sometimes in uh, what Mike and I might think of as like the more positive reinforcement world, it's like the dog and the trainer and they're trying to, you know, get the owner and the guardian on board. But what you've always done such a great job, in my opinion, is you're speaking to both of those groups of professionals and all those different philosophies and saying, hey, let's, let's approach this from a place of like Mark is saying, conflict mediation, being neutral helping everybody understand where each sentient creature is coming from, and then building tools, structures, techniques, and safety elements to really start to make some gains and and move in the right direction together, which I think is that journey you were talking about, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's enough emotions already in aggression cases that we don't want to add more by adding more conflict, more stress, creating more friction in the conversations because that's just going to derail things. So we have to remain neutral. And as Mark said, mediation is very important in these cases. Hey, we're going to take a quick break right now. I'm going to hand this over to Drew and we'll be right back. Holy mackerel. I want to tell you about my favorite dog training treats. Does your dog ever have a little bit of a turkey? Does he ever ignore you, treat you like your chopped liver? (laughs) That was cheesy. Wait, All of these are different proteins you can try from Fig and Tyler. Fig and Tyler makes these premium dog treats that I use in my training programs. And did you know you can make custom bundles? So let's say you want to try the mackerel, the turkey, the beef liver, or the goat's cheese. All the things I mentioned, you could put them in a custom bundle. Try them today. They have a special offer for our listeners. You can go to figandtyler.com and put love dog in the promo code at checkout. You'll receive 10% off your first order. They've also got an amazing program for pet professionals. All you have to do is go to figandtyler.com, look for the pet pros tab and hit join program. Again, put love dog in the referral tab. You're going to love these. Your dog will be so happy you did it. And now let's get back to our conversation with Mike Shikashio. In a way, I'm jumping ahead now, if you don't mind. I'm just wondering, do you ever walk into situations 
where the dog just has to be removed from the household. Sure. Yeah. Or it might be in the best, I hate to say this, I hope it's okay, it might be in the best interests of the dog and the people and the community the dog has to be put down. I mean, you can say something, I don't know what to say, but you you know where I'm going with that, right? Sure. Sure. I I think one of the big questions out there is, can you save them all? Can you help all of the dogs that have aggression issues? Yes. Yes. And um, and there's some beliefs. Some people believe that. Like you can help every single dog out there. And unfortunately, there's dogs out there that are really beyond any kind of an environment that we can put them in, that they're going to live a high quality of life or any quality of life and not be dangerous, you know, because there are just like people, right? There's some people on this planet that we can put everything we have as humans in our knowledge and our resources our behavior change strategies, our penitentiaries, our medications, our surgeries, whatever, anybody, anybody who thinks they can change that person, throw a shot at it, give, give it a go, see what you can do. But that person's still going to be a killer, right? And same thing can happen with dogs. And fortunately, it's such a very small percentage of rare cases of those dogs that are truly, um, there's, no matter what we do at this point and what we know as humans can help that dog. And so, yes, there are cases. And, and with dogs, you also have to consider, just like with Bebo, the society, the, the risk of society. And one of the questions I ask people when they're considering saving a very dangerous dog is, are you okay with that dog living next door to you with your children, in your home, with your family, with your dogs, with your pets, with your cats? And that dog lives right next door to you with a neighbor, and you have to trust your neighbor to keep you safe from that dog. And most of the time, the answer is no. Like they're like, "Ooh, that's a good point." So, so that's um, empathy in a way. Empathy is incredibly important in the work we do, Uh, but understanding and critical thought are also important because if we have this romantic idea, which is very easy to latch onto, let's save all the dogs. You know, the poor dogs; it's not their fault. And most of the time, it's not. But that we have to do recognize that there are some dogs that are inherently dangerous and are not fit for society. But again. That is such a small percentage of dogs. Okay. And here's a beautiful thing, Mark, is that the vast majority of dogs on this planet are actually very tolerant of us as humans. <laughs> well, I'm glad I asked and I'm, and I'm glad this is where yeah. the conversation landed because mm-hmm. that makes sense. I wouldn't think that most dogs yeah. would be taken out of society, but there are going to be those cases. Right. Well, and often I find, Mike, it's it's not necessarily the individual dog or that behavior so much as like the availability of resources. So if you're looking at a dog that's going to need a, a big, long management and training plan and, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're mapping this out with them and you're, you're going up against time, energy, financial resources, all these different things yep. or a timeline like a baby with a due date and <laughs> And you're and you're just doing that risk assessment of going, man, this dog has a tremendous bite history. Like, what are the chances mm-hmm. like this little kid coming in the home is going to be safe? And right. you know, how do you have those hard conversations? So basically, we need to redo your bio and add marriage counselor. We need <laughs> parental guru. Mike, are you finding with the increase in adoptions over the past five years mm-hmm. it's become so popular? Is there an increase in the need for what you do? Are, are we finding more aggressive dogs? Um, anecdotally, yes. You know, I'd be interested to see statistically, 
you know, if that's true. But from my perspective and from my students, you know, I have thousands of students around the world now that I can get a pretty good feel for seeing, are they getting busier? Are they seeing more aggression cases? And the answer is yes, especially in the last five years. I think there's a multitude of reasons for it. I think the pandemic, right. uh, there was a significant spike in adoptions, which was great. A lot of sh- a lot of shelters cleared out. There was a huge demand. Right. But then also with that demand became, there was a, a huge push for producing unethically, in my opinion, a lot of puppies, you know, puppies for puppy mills or places where they're not getting good socialization or poor genetics. And so you're getting a lot of dogs that now we're seeing two years later, which is right about the right, right, true, right about the right time where we're seeing dogs that typically start to show behavior issues uh, and a significant spike of those dogs. Uh, so that's one component. We have, we're having dogs brought in from other places that maybe shouldn't be brought in from other places. And this is um, sort of debatable, but you know, dogs from meat trades or other countries right. where they're living a perfectly good life on the streets of, uh, let's say, Puerto Rico. Yeah. And somebody's like, let's save those dogs. They need a home. And then somebody adopts that dog and shoves them in an apartment in like Boston with like 400 square feet. And they never see the light of day hardly half the time where previously they had all this freedom of life and working the tourists and getting fed really well. I mean, so that's another one where you're getting dogs pulled from different places. And then the shelters were also adopting out dogs that probably shouldn't have been in certain homes. Well, we just had a very interesting conversation for the podcast with Mark Beckoff, and this issue of captivity came up, not in the context you're speaking about, but that's very interesting. It's one we hadn't thought about. That's rather fascinating to me. It makes me want to talk about this issue of we start to label dogs as becoming aggressive when they've acted out once or something Mm -hmm. or twice. And this starts to put something in the mind of the dog guardian or owner, perhaps the trainer. This dog has to be isolated. This dog has to be put further into captivity. You know what I'm saying? Um, But yet, we know optimally we want that dog to have freedom. We want that dog, as we said with Mark, to be able to be a dog. So what's the line that one should cross when we begin to, my dog's aggressive. I can't take him out anymore. I've got to keep him in his crate. He can't go to the dog park. You know, what do we do in that scenario? It's probably fairly common. It, it's it's extremely common because, I, and I I never blame my clients. I mean, they're they're doing the best they can when we hear about excessive management. You know, the dog's kept in a crate all day, or the yeah. dogs you know can't go on walks anymore, or can't go to this park anymore because my dog's doing this or that. So you have to empathize with that because. A lot of clients, they're just trying to do the best. They're trying to avoid dog bites. They're trying to avoid the embarrassment, the, the feelings of guilt that can come along with with the dog displaying this kind of behavior. So my job and the job of a good consultant or trainer is to find alternatives for that dog while we get the dog back on the path of it being able to go for walks or for Uncle Bob to be able to come over and visit on Thanksgiving, right? The times when the dog might display aggression we need to come up with creative solutions for those dogs. Uh-huh. And so, you know, just for instance, there's this great company, it's called Sniff Spot, that they rent out yards. People can rent out their yard like an Airbnb. And uh, it's for oh. the dogs. And oh. so let's say for dogs that have issues with other dogs, it's a great place, you know. So you can say, let me get this person's yard and rent it for uh, whatever, 15, 20 bucks for the hour. And then your dog has a great place, new place to go sniff things and enjoy life and 
check out this new place without the worry about attacking and being attacked by another dog or this dog having issues with other dogs or people. So those are some of the creative solutions we might need to come up with for the dogs that we can't take for a walk in the streets of Manhattan for the time being. Right. Uh, we work on, we of course want to work on those issues. We want to expand right. that dog's world. But yeah, the, that's the issues that it becomes a vicious cycle. More and more dogs, they start to, let's say it's the dog has issues with other dogs. They start to go out and they bark at other dogs, but like, ah, now I got to stop the walk. Oh, now I can't go to this park because there was a dog there. Oh, I can't go for a car ride here. And the dog's world becomes smaller, which then makes it worse because the next right. time they see another dog, yeah. it's such a big deal. And I know you you talk a lot about enrichment and giving outlets for those dog behaviors, Mike, in mm -hmm. your training and your and your workshops and things like that. And um, it, it's such a like you said vicious circle where it's like they've had that loss of trust. They don't know what's going to happen if they go mm -hmm. out, so they're operating from a place of fear. In something I heard you say through your education, really, you're not trying to teach people to be more confident. You're teaching competence. So it's like once you give them those tools, whether it's teaching them how to safely manage and handle, maybe mm -hmm. they're doing some muzzle training proactively so the dog can comfortably be in certain areas without the risk of another bite and things like that, where all of a sudden that dog's life tends to expand rather than just get, you know, put away and locked away and, and things like that. So that's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so important for dogs with any behavior issues to expand their universe, improve their quality of life. Because sometimes that's all you need to actually do to fix the behavior issue. You know, just increase the amount of enrichment, and that can change the behavior in and of that itself. That is so spot you know? on, Mike. I mean, I can't tell you how right. many clients I see where I'm like, oh, and I know you had. Um, Allie Bender and Emily Strong on before mm -hmm. in their wonderful book, Enrichment for the Real World. And it's like enrichment can be the training plan. Like how yeah. many of these dogs, especially in suburban and urban environments where it's like you take them out for a walk in nature and it's like, oh, I'm a dog. And, and it's not yeah. that hypervigilance that we're used to seeing in that immediate neighborhood. A colleague of mine, Eric Gillespie, who have known and worked with for years, it's like, oh, one of the first things I want to do is get, you know, 15 minutes away from that dog's home because they're so conditioned when they go outside. They're like, I'm on alert. Like, what's going to happen today? I can't, I, I have no idea. Versus you turn down that, that, that aggression pathway in the brain and all of a sudden you have seeking behavior. You see a different thinking animal in front of you, which is wonderful. I think now would be a good time to break away for a moment and just mention to our listeners that there are a number of ways, important ways, that they can support us. If you're listening and you're enjoying the show and you're finding it helpful, here's what you can do. One, you can spread the word. Word of mouth is the best way to get the message out there. And tell anybody you know, a friend, a family member who has a dog that you think might also enjoy it and find it helpful, just to take a listen. That would be amazing. You can follow us on your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Our handle is at lovedognews. That's at lovedognews. And the most fun is you can buy us a cup of coffee. You can go to Kofi, which is K-O-F like Frank I dot com slash lovedog and donate to the show, which is a great way to support us. And we set the minimum donation at $4, I believe, so it's not going to break the bag, as they say. All right, so we'll get back to the show now. Just wanted to remind you there are things you can do to help us along. 
So speaking of pathways and chemicals, you know, one of one of the biggest things everybody talks about in the world of dogs is oxytocin and it's the warm fuzzy, the love hormone, and we often talk about it as the bonding hormone. But I always have this theory and I want to pass it by you and see what you think that there is kind of a dark side to oxytocin that when you get these really bonded dogs and these people, I'm sure you've heard anecdotally your clients saying, "Oh, he's protecting me" or He's only reacting because of my reactivity. You were just talking to him with Mark about what if a, uh, a couple is in distress and how that stress is affecting the dog. Do you think that dogs that have that really bonded relationship with a person and they share a lot of that oxytocin, do you think there's kind of an othering in some of these extreme cases where when that person's there, I know I've seen over the years, a lot of these dogs make growth away from the person then come back and then teach both the dog and the person to send those right signals to each other and really like work together again where they're not operating from a place of reactivity and fear. So, I just want to pop this idea by you and see what your thoughts are on what I deem the dark side of oxytocin. Yeah, this this is a deep question because you can look at it from different angles and different scientific lenses. So I'll speak from my multi-lens approach here in that when you're talking about that human-animal bond, you might look at it a couple of different ways. Is it strictly relationship or is it something the dog finds value in? So let's just replace that person with like a certain toy or a certain type of food or a certain bone, or a certain resting spot in the home, and what value do those things bring to that dog? It's uh, it's interesting because I was just in Chile. Again, I was mentioning that, and there's this, it's all desert where I was, right? It was, and it's actually the driest place on the planet. Okay, so it's the driest place you can go on the planet Earth is in the northern side of Chile in the desert area, and there was this beautiful picture I took. It was this one tree, this beautiful green tree in the middle of this part of the desert we were in. And I thought, this is such a good example of the scarcity of resources, how valuable something can be. And one of the things is we, you know, you know, you don't work with is dogs that guard things that are resources, you know, dogs that compete over things of value. And it just puts you in perspective that different things are going to have different value to whoever needs it. And dogs in the desert, they compete over, you would think, what do dogs typically compete over? Food or people's attention. A lot of them, what they compete over is shade. Shade, yeah. Because it's such a scarce resource. Mm. And you don't think about that here in the US. You're like, oh, dogs are going to fight over that spot underneath a tree in Central Park. Probably not. But in the desert, probably because it's such a scarce resource. So going back to people, how scarce is that person or how valuable is that person to the dog and how attached are they? Is it because they find value in that person? Now, going back to the street dogs here, you would think they're, they're really good at like working the tourists. So you think the dog is like building a relationship with you. Like I had this, this lovely little black and white dog. I'm sitting at this outdoor cafe, very hot day, umbrella at like cafe in this in San Pedro de Atacama. And this black and white dog comes up to me and puts his chin on my, my lap. I'm like, oh, he wants some of my French fries. And Oddly enough, this one like French fries. A lot of them don't take French fries or bread or vegetables because they only get the best of the best. They like can eat, be picky about meat or whatever they want. But this dog's taking French fries. So I was like, wow, this dog's really building a bond with me. I like this thing. This dog loves me. I'm like, ah, this dog is just good at working chores. Because as soon as I get up, he's just like, I know what to do to the next person. 
go over and give this cute look and just stare at this person. So, did you look it, back it, and say, I thought we had something here? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I thought we had a little relationship going here. <laughs> so, we sometimes put our own human constructs on what we think is a relationship. Now, yeah. to go back to the deeper question, yes, I think that some dogs do form an attachment. So, you might look into attachment theory, but some dogs do form that attachment to a person and it goes beyond just you know producing resources. They build just like humans a relationship and it's hard to operationalize or describe that, right? Like if I asked you, you know, who do you love? And then, all right, tell me what that looks like. Tell me why. That's hard to describe. And so same thing I think can happen with the relationship we have with dogs. It's not easy to describe. Or I said, Drew, tell me about your relationship with your dog, but make me really understand it. Yeah. I wonder if it's, um, and I don't know if it would be in the category of what we might call disorganized attachment. Mm -hmm. And that is a human category, mm -hmm. you know, for some people. Yep. But it makes me think of that, a disorganized mm -hmm. kind of attachment because they're just, with these tourists especially, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but- It definitely makes sense. It comes yeah. to mind. Yeah. What little I know of disorganized attachment, yes, you might see that as well. You know, I think what you might see with dogs, what, and let's go back to the aggression topic, which you might see with dogs that are attached to their owner in a sense of- I'm not just valuing you because you just gave me a piece of chicken. It's I value you because you've been with me for years. I trust you. I feel safe Correct. with you. You know, right. that kind of that kind of relationship. You might see aggression surface because for several reasons. So the the most romantic idea is the dog's protecting that person, which can happen. That there's some dogs we've selected for and bred for doing that. You know, so think of your Malinois or your Rottweilers. They don't all do that, but they're more likely to do it than your Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, right? Uh -huh. Because what was the first one that. you mentioned before Rottweiler? Uh, Mal, like a Belgian Malinois, right? So okay. they, you know, our German Shepherds, some dogs that are uh, selected for protecting people or property or things like that. So you might see it where the dog is truly protecting that person, saying, "Don't threaten my owner, don't touch my owner." But those are those are rare cases, actually. Uh, the more common one is, "Don't take my owner away from me because I value them." Right. So I don't, the person might have chicken, the person might give me attention, the person might give me shelter. And then the other kind is the dog is really just attached. I don't want to lose this person because I'm really bonded to them. And that can look like I've seen this happen actually. I just consulted on a case the other day. Somebody, you hand the leash to somebody else and that person walks away with a leash. So, you know, you're the owner, you have the leash, you give it to the person. Could be a veterinarian, could be a groomer, could be a trainer, could be your friend. That person walks away with the leash. And then the dog bites that person. Why does that happen? When it doesn't happen in other contexts, it doesn't happen off leash, you're like, what is happening here? All he did was walk away with leash. It's because it's predicting a significantly aversive or painful panicking event where the dog's like, you're taking me away from my person. Imagine if we did that to like a child or to our partner. You're like, you know, honey, here you go. I'm going to hand you off to the strange person. See you later. And they've got you by the hand and they pull you away, right? So the, what you're saying is that the dog is actually, has made the connection that that leash is the dog's connection to well, the- Actually, it's preventing their escape back to their person. So just like if I said, here's a handcuff, I'm going to put it on this strange person. Now you're attached to that person. You can't get away. So you're stuck with them. Now oh. as that person's walking away- and because dogs are dogs, they don't know. It's only for five minutes or for this thing. It's like, uh, all right, honey, here you go. There's a stranger and we're 
We're in right. the streets here. You don't know this person. Dogs are so so contextual, and yep. they start to learn these mm-hmm. these signals, these cues, locations, events. Yep. So just the handing of the leash might be the event, and you know yep. we we might start thinking about how the dog perceives that. Yeah, and and basically in in our world, Mike, we're talking about removing degrees of freedom, and that dog feeling yep. like. There's only one way for me to reunite this situation. Yeah. And so how do I how do I get away? And usually it's to yeah. bite. Right. How does jealousy present? It can happen in dogs. I mean, there's some debate about that, but there's also been some studies done in other species, monkeys and rats. But jealousy can happen, in my opinion, in dogs. And it, you might see it sometimes when one dog is getting a higher perceived higher value or magnitude of a resource than the other dog and the other dog can get jealous and attack that other dog. Again, that's not common. So any listeners, I don't want you to think, don't hand your leash to anybody. Don't give your dog this more <laughs> or that. It's most dogs are gonna be totally fine. But would you mind if I asked you a question about my dog and what he's doing? Sure. <laughs> this this whole thing has been a rouge, Mike. You're just here for a behavior consultation. It's really all about Hank. <laughs> I'll bill you after, Mark. <laughs> He's standing right here and I'm trying to keep him from making too much noise. We encourage dog guest hosts. Um, yes. So I've only had Hank since July. He's a four-year-old lab. Mm-hmm. He came from a loving home, which is good for me to know. We're very attached now. And he's clearly, he knows who I am. He's very attached. He's very affectionate. I took him to Seattle. We were going to some people's house. They were going away for a few weeks and they had a dog. I, I, they got an Australian cattle dog. And- Hank, my dog, is allowed on the bed, wouldn't allow Ripley, their dog, on the bed. He wanted to come on the bed with us. And Hank was just growl and err. It was resolved. Talk about mediation. Well, I, I wasn't able to resolve it. I was standing in the kitchen. They were outside in the backyard, and I hear this huge fight break out. And Ripley, their dog, got Hank in the nose. It lasted 10 seconds because I stopped it or less. But from that point on, Hank let Ripley on the bed, no problem. Now, it was Ripley's house. So I was wondering, was Hank protecting me in that scenario from from Ripley coming onto the bed? Probably more resource guarding. That's the classic term for it, where Hank just values you. And he's like, this is, this is my person. I don't want you to, to get in there and take my person away or threaten the potential for me losing my person. And and that's that could be simply it. I maybe you might think of it in a way that maybe he was protecting you, but that's usually not the most common scenario. Well, and it's so interesting because you think about resource guarding, and I'm sure you see this all the time, Mike. And I feel like you probably even taught this to me years ago. I, you can have the same resource, like a person, or you know, a, a bone, or you know, a slow consumable resource, or a toy. If you're in a space where there's movement, where there's availability for movement, like you might get a different behavioral response than if you're, say, in a tight space. Like I can't tell you how many times over the years I've gone to clients' houses and they report they always happen in doorways when everybody's getting let out or in tight space or a hallway. And kind of like you're describing, Mark, you know, you're in a bed, you're laying down. So resources can be anything. I mean, they can be physical resources like um, toys and food and things like that. Mm -hmm. but they can also be their space. We see this in the veterinary world. I think there's part of that with veterinary handling. But like Mike said, again, there's contextual elements there. Am I going to get hurt? Am I going to be intimidated or fearful? Am I going to be restrained? So there might be a little bit of a escape avoidance stuff going on too. It could be a number of things. And really kind of our job is to go in there and 
look at those situations, try to change through behavior science and and change one part of that equation and then see what kind of results we're getting and get that feedback. And it, it doesn't always work. I mean, you were talking about those options, Mike, earlier when you go in those difficult cases and mm-hmm. you're saying, man, we might not have a ton of time or resources to use to resolve this issue. And, and the work you do is so not only emotionally involved, but it can be really heavy. It can feel like, like you want to come in there and be that person that helps them. And you might be the fourth or fifth person they've seen and they may have made some mistakes along the way and really made it even harder for you to build that trusting relationship. But in those cases where you're not able to help somebody or where it's the worst case scenario and, you know, the dog ends up being euthanized, have you ever found any techniques or strategies or anything to help yourself or tools you give to other professionals to kind of think about that recovery period and what that feels like? Because I know I've, I've struggled with that over the years in those difficult cases where you just wish you could have done more. You wish you could have, you know, been that lightning rod for them. You wish there was that behavior hack that you could have just applied. What kinds of things do you do or, or advice do you give clients to help them move on from those events and those difficult situations? You know, what's, what's interesting for me here is that I've actually been asked this question a number of times over the years. And just now I'm realizing that I've changed my response to that many times over the years because it's evolved. You know, so your classic, go get a massage, you know, do something like, oh, take some downtime is the standard answer that a lot of people give at first. Because well, yeah, that works for some people, but that's not really, that's that's just so surface level, right? It doesn't, it'll it'll satisfy for a, a moment. It's like having a glass of, you know, have a glass of wine after your tough consult, right? It's momentary. And then you get into the part of the job, like, all right, what are we going to do as part of the job to re- alleviate some of that burnout or that compassion fatigue that we can face? So you get into things like, okay, I'm going to go into those consults and this works really well. So I recommend doing this, but is go in knowing that you're going to give 100%. So you go in with the information and knowledge you have at the time, because that's going to evolve too. You're going to know much more 10 years from now than you did today. And I go in knowing that I'm just going to give the best I can. And I'm going to make sure I'm 100% or I'm actually going to reschedule that consult for my own safety too. But I don't want to go in there tired at like 50% level and and leave there questioning myself. Did I did I give, do the best I could? Did I give them the best knowledge and information? Because that's really what we're there doing is answering questions, providing information and a game plan going forward. So leaving those consults, I know I gave 100%. I can rest easy at night. It's like I did the best I can. I gave them the information I had. What they do with it now is their responsibility. I will continue to motivate and follow up, but I'm giving 100%. So I know I can rest easy doing knowing I gave the best I can based on their situation. But that still didn't resonate with me as much as what I do now. And that's just finding balance throughout your whole life. You know, this this career, this job has taught me so many things about just life and balancing things out and making sure you have a support network around you, uh, really finding the purpose in what you're doing and making sure you're true to that purpose. For me, it's helping the dogs and the people and knowing that that's why you keep going because you once you have that balance you know that you keep going forward and that you have a way of not putting yourself 110% of the time it's okay it's okay you have the balance and so that for me is what i've learned especially in just the last year 
that keeps me going. So I think there's stages to to this in any career, really. But that's what I've learned working with dogs. So yeah, it's amazing. It's 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 so difficult, and I don't know if people know quite how taxing it is. I mean, you work with some of these really serious cases. It can be physically, it can be emotionally draining. You know, you come to the end of the day and you're like, I got to get up and do that again tomorrow. <laughs> and it's it's often loaded and emotional from every standpoint. You feel awful when the dog's in distress and you, and you want to alleviate that pain for them. You feel terrible. I mean, <laughs> I can't tell you how many soft, wet spots on my shoulders I have from clients crying on my shoulder, just going, you're like the only person that's trying to make this better. And you know, you become that respite for people and and you're trying to be there for both species in a way that's it's really incredible. And I really value the not only the work you do, but how you bring yourself and teach others how to bring themselves to that situation. So thank you. I appreciate that. I guess I have three questions I want to ask you. And sure. this is advice from you to our listeners. What would your advice be to a dog guardian, dog owner. We use those terms interchangeably, by the way. We might also mm -hmm. say human companion, but we're in Colorado, so we say dog guardian, right? What would your advice be to the dog guardian whose dog has been doing great? They've been working with a trainer. There were some aggression issues. They seem to have been resolved or they're much, much better. And all of a sudden, there's an incident. It happens, <laughs> right? It happens. And I think one of the best pieces of advice any trainer can give a client before they leave for that last session is to say it could happen again because it's behavior. It's behavior a dog has practiced just like any other behavior a human may practice. It could come back and it would be absolutely normal for it to come back because aggression is used to keep somebody feeling safe, to remove a threat. So Mark, if you told me I punched some guy in the face once, I'm, I was really aggressive. But then you told me the guy was robbing you at gunpoint. Am I going to say, oh, we've cured your aggression. You're never going to punch somebody in the face again. But what's going to happen the next time somebody sticks you up at gunpoint? You're going to go right back to what works. So it's up to the guardian then to some extent yep. to understand the circumstances yeah. that the aggression occurred and recurred. Yeah. Let's not walk Mark down that same street where there's people right. who are going to hold you up at gunpoint, right? Right. Or equip you with the skills to deal with that or to right. get, talk yourself out of that situation. You know, So uh, we, we have to have that you know, reasonable expectations for our dogs too. So for that client that says, oh my gosh, I had one more bite and said, I thought this was all cured. I'll find out why. Like, what, what was the circumstances? Why? It's always why. Exactly. Right. Always. And, 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 when, and most of the time, it's going to be very, very explanatory, like normal explanatory behavior. What would your advice be to the person whose dog just bit someone? A little kid, their best friend's eight-year-old. Or their best friend. <laughs> Again, why? Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll answer that. I'll start out with yeah. why, but yeah. go from there. Yeah, because that's a, the most emotional time. So I, I think it's important to take, I will say, let's talk about the why and what the potential for the future is first, but take a few days at least, think about things to let you think about you know the emotions you're experiencing, yeah. as well as allow the dog some time to de-stress, take a moment to unpack everything that happened because the most emotional decisions are going to be made. And sometimes we're not thinking we're in those states of mind. 
And it's good to know. So why, I guess I'm thinking back to a couple of incidences. Why mm-hmm. was the dog will bite because the dog feels threatened. So why was the dog threatened? Does that make sense? Exactly. It's exactly what we're looking for. Yep. And then the third question, I'm sure you've never been asked this question. Is there a bad rap on pit bulls? <laughs> yes. The more I learn, there are people that are yeah. so passionate yeah. about pit bulls that they're misrepresented. Yeah. What is your experience? What do you know? What can you tell us? Well, they're actually just right now the dog that everybody's picking on because it's not always been pit bulls. I mean, if you go back historically and right. what movies and what me- the media was coming, it was Dobermans. You know, I've had Dobermans. <laughs> You know, Magnum PI days, and people would think like, oh, Dobermans are really vicious. And then, yeah. But Mike, you're right on. It seems like every generation, there's a new kind of media. Rottweilers um, during Cujo. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, which dog was featured or- You think that's what it is? They're being picked on right now? Really? It definitely a lot of media sensation and public okay. um, misunderstanding. It's been going on for years, right? It's made its way across the globe. Yeah. And um, so different breeds will get different attention at different times, depending on, you know, what's going on with the media. Because when you look at statistically, you know, um, there's a lot of misquoting of statistics because if you look at- the identification of pit bulls to begin with, most people can't identify a pit bull correctly, even professionals. Right. You know, if you look yep. at one study, they asked not just average pet owners, they looked at, they asked veterinarians, PhDs, dog trainers, all to identify. There was one pit bull on a, don't quote me on the exact number, I think like 20 different dogs that all look like pit bulls. They like identify the pit bull. And the, the results were dismal, like awful, oh. meaning nobody could identify the pit bull. Correctly, oh. and this were all professionals. So that's what happens. Like somebody will say, "Oh, Pitbull bit this child," but it may not be a Pitbull at all. Well, and and Mike, I'm curious what you think about this. I think the big difference between now and say, you know, when Dobermans or Rotties mm-hmm. were those targets, is legislation got involved. So we got breed specific yeah. legislation, mm-hmm. which that sounds like, oh, it'll be Pitbulls, but it was the language was so convoluted mm-hmm. to the point where it was open. So it was dogs that even resemble the quote American Pit Bull Terrier, yeah. which just left that doorway wide open and and the amount of fallout from that and dogs yeah. who were unnecessarily killed or removed from homes is just tragic. Yeah. And, and, and they get a lot of publicity too. It's so. happening in the UK right now with a it's right. called the XL bully brand ban. And right. It's, right. it's very similar. It's just taking dogs based on head measurements and looks, which is really awful. You know, yeah. and it's because people, you, you imagine if you have a dog that's quite lovely and you've had it for eight years with no issues at all, but it just matches that standard, they could pull that dog or order you to euthanize your dog. I mean, it's really awful what's happening. So, yeah, we actually did a little story on that in on mm-hmm. lovedog.com, rec- actually, fairly mm-hmm. recently. It's, it's There's been some new legislation that's come out in the past few months, I think, over there in the UK, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I have yeah. a bonus question. Can you talk about, and this is something that I'm experiencing and that a lot of people are experiencing, dogs on a leash. They're, mm-hmm. they, get, they get very aggressive. Take them off the leash, they're the sweetest things. What's going on for the dog? Is it that captivity thing in a way? Is it related to that? It could be a couple of things. The uh-huh. most common is just, it's the dog's restriction of movement. You know, The more freedom you give a dog, the less likely you're going to have behavior issues because they have choice and control. They have agency to kind of do what they want. Same with people. 
It's the same right. with people. You know, you right. put somebody in solitary confinement, what's going to happen? Um, so it's a leash obviously isn't the same as solitary confinement, but it can be still very restrictive. Then when you add in more restrictions, let's say I've said, let's Mark, we're going to go out and, you know, we're going to, we're going to go hang out, but you're going to be next to me and I'm going to be holding you by the wrist the whole time. You can't go talk to anybody. Go, oh, you can't go say to your friend over there. Nope. Oh, nope. You can't go to the bar, get a drink. You got, you're right here with me. I can't imagine how frustrating that would get. So frustration is one of the most common motivations. And then, of course, you have fear. What if I'm like, Mark, here comes that big guy. He's coming over to punch you in the face. Ah, you can't go anywhere. You're stuck with me. So fear can be uh, one of the motivations. Yeah, because we, we see it all the time. Dogs mm -hmm. just go crazy mm -hmm. on a leash and yep. they'll start attacking each other. You got to pull yeah. them back. It's yeah. And that's that's kind of the other one that, that creeps up in there is sometimes pain or discomfort from people pulling on a leash or if the dog's got a neck issue or if they've got a corrective tool on the dog. What can happen is now you're associating pain with the thing. And it doesn't always have to be just like the collar or whatever they have on. It could be they have a, a joint issue and I'm pulling them back or they have a neck issue and I'm pulling them back by collar. Uh -huh. And now I'm associating pain with that thing. So same thing, Mark, if I was like, Mark, the guy's coming over here and every time I'm going to smack you in the back of the head while the guy's coming over here because I don't want you to yell at him, you're going to start to associate getting smacked in the back of the head with that particular person approaching. And if I do it enough times, you're going to start expecting it. You're going to be like, oh, I really hate when that guy approaches because Mike's going to smack me in the back of the head and this guy's going to punch me in the face. So this is really mm -hmm. is not. So you're going to, what are you going to do? You're going to really fight me holding your wrist, right? So same thing can happen for dogs. It's really just restricting. It's the restriction of their options. But we also don't always have a choice. We have to walk our dog right. on a leash. Exactly. So I guess if your dog is Pro, some dogs are just walk by, they don't care. Other dogs mm -hmm. go nuts. Yep. And yeah, so you have to know your dog. Yeah. And you have to just know that, yeah, the dog is going to have to be restricted. A lot of the, you know, in some areas, I think leash, leash laws are becoming less restrictive and more liberal. Mm -hmm. And in other places, they're becoming stricter. Yeah. And it's a dilemma for us. You know, because I think mm -hmm. a lot of us want the dog to be free, roam free, yeah. and just and be a dog. You know. Yeah. Well, and it can be really scary too, Mark, for people like Mike and I who are out there trying to help these dogs. We rely so heavily on those leash laws to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing worse for me when I'm out there working with that reactive dog who's trying to get better, and it's always the super friendly dog that's coming charging up to me is not on leash and they're screaming he's friendly and i'm going she's not you need to get your right, dog you know right right <laughs> and so, so there are it's, both sides to this yeah. you know there are just are both sides you got to work it out with the, as the dog guardian right yeah you know you got to find out what's going to work for your dog mm -hmm. and i'm not someone for example who loves to go to dog parks where they can be off leash obviously so i've got to find an alternative other people, it might be a little easier because they, they have no issues with dog parks. So, I get it. Yeah. Well, and that's where resources come in. You know, Mike was mentioning having those tools to give people, whether it's, oh, have you heard of Sniff Spot or, you know, let me teach you how to use a long line so your dog can have a little more agency on those walks so they're not so restrictive. Or when you find that dog who's been trained, you know, using a prong or a choke chain and you're going, you know, this might be working against your training goals. Let's try something else. You know, a little bit of inside baseball here, Mike, you've given a lot of tools 
to trainers over the years, do you have any like go-to equipment or resources that you just love to give out to trainers these days? Um, you know, I think it's a big, it depends question. It depends on the case, you know, in terms of safety, I have a recommended list of different, you know, safety tools, muzzles and things like that. I run a website, it's called the Muzzle Up Project, which uh, yeah. helps destigmatize, you know, a lot of people have think muzzles are like putting, you know, a mask on Hannibal Lecter, but it's really, uh, it's a safety tool. And so, you know, I don't have necessarily go to particular item for trainers other than the list of typical tools I would use to stay safe, uh, first and foremost, and because we don't want a dog biting anybody else, right? And then, of course, the, you know, the tool I use when I talk about tools with most of my aggression cases is food. Food yeah. is going to be the fastest way to most dogs' hearts, right? Whether it's a street dog in Chile or it's a dog here that has aggression issues in the U.S., you're going to get the fastest results most of the time with food. So we were talking about Fig and Tyler earlier on, but that's one of the treat companies I recommend. They, they have those really great freeze-dried treats there. Human grade and dogs absolutely love them because they have so many different, really. It's like all good food that dogs would. And that's what you want to use in your aggression cases. Like don't don't use the small stuff. Don't use the $1 bills. Use the $100 bills if you want to get behavior fast. And things like Fig, Fig and Tyler makes perfect. Yeah. When you run out of French fries, you reach for the Fig and Tyler dehydrated treats. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I wish I had a bag of that on me when I was down there. I would have a lot more relationships going. <laughs> well, that's so interesting because I always find a lot of my training clients, they'll you start talking about using positive reinforcement and food, mm -hmm. and a lot of times they're pulling out their either their kibble or mm -hmm. they've gone the other end where they're buying like really expensive stuff or they're getting food out of the fridge and they're yeah. kind of conflating. And then you're getting all these dogs are like they're walking around with prime rib or something sticky <laughs> on their hands. So I I also really like dehydrated treats and. They're great for um, trainers because they do a pet professional program. So they let trainers also give out their information and things like that to their clients, which everybody wins. They get discounts and stuff, which is great too. You know what I found to be one of the most um, interesting parts of this conversation, which we didn't really dive deep into, but there have been documentary films made on it. And we did a photo essay on the dogs of India in lovedog.com, mm -hmm. for example. I mean, I don't know so much, but I know in Turkey, I know in India, I know in Uganda, for example, you were talking about Chile and I'm sure everywhere. <laughs> I mean, the street dog or the stray dog population, it's a part of the culture <laughs> and the, the people, and I'm not talking about the tourists now, but the locals, the people that live there, they've accepted this, I think, in a lot of cases, right? I'm just really curious now. What are the aggression issues in these dogs? I don't know how to ask the question about specifics, but they can live their entire lives, I imagine, yeah. on the street. They're fed and, and essentially cared for to some extent, not to our standards, but to those standards. And they live a, a long life, right? They travel in packs in many cases. Can you just talk about it? I just think it's a really interesting topic and aggression probably plays into that. Yeah, and so that's that's the really interesting thing about traveling, you know, and being fortunate enough now to travel to dozens of countries around the world to just observe dogs and how much the culture and the environment affects their behavior. And what you 
miss and you don't see in a lot of these places, Mark, is aggression. And if you do see any aggressive behavior- You mean with the dogs that are actually on the street? Exactly. You yeah. don't see the aggression toward humans or the dogs toward one another. If you were other. to compare, you know, if you were to say like, let's take the US population of dogs and take them all out on this to see what their behavior is like. Let's take all of the dogs, let's say in the streets of Mexico and compare their aggressive behavior. Right. You'd see such a profound difference because of the environment. Our dogs and are going to be more aggressive. Our dogs are going to look like Fight Club. It's going to be like the UFC and be the dogs from Mexico be like, what is wrong with you guys up there? Look what the humans here do to each yes. other. <laughs> the amount of yeah. overt aggression is right. unnatural. It's just, yeah. it's, right. that's environment. And if you think about it, humans are exactly the same. We are products of our environment. We're territorial, the we're tribal. Right. The relationships, exactly. We create right. wars, we fight with each other depending on the conditions of the environment. When resources are there, when everybody's happy, when they have freedom, they're able to make the choices they want in their lives. There's no reason to become aggressive. There's no reason to punch your neighbor in the face because you're not upset about anything. Right. And so the same thing you see is really these just very happy dogs. Now, I, I want to also clarify, not every single dog that's free roaming or doesn't have a home. By the way, the vast majority of dogs on our planet are not owned by anybody. You know, So yeah. uh, we have a, actually a very small percentage of the dogs in the entire world are actually have a home or owned by it. Really? But, yeah, the vast billions yep. of dogs are not owned by anybody in a free world. They live on the streets, Ex exactly. Or you know, they might call them streeties or street dogs, where they they live on the streets, but they kind of claim an owner. They like sit in front of a storefront or somebody's house, and that's their owner. Wow, and that owner might feed them or give them water, but the dog can come and go as they please, and you don't see that overt aggression. Now, aggression is going to happen at very low levels because that's how they keep access to resources. Now, if there's a limitation of resources or the dogs are not being treated well, and that can happen in some countries, then you might see different types of behavior. You might see more overt aggression, but usually you just see the dogs hiding out. So let's take a, a, an example most people will recognize. Like if you see pigeons in Central Park, are they all scurrying away from everybody walking by or running away from the park bench when somebody goes sits down? No, because no. they're adapted to that environment. They're like, somebody could feed me here. Somebody could give me some crumbs. So I'm going to hang out and I'm not worried about people because- most people in Central Park are not like, oh my gosh, it's a pigeon. I have to catch it or pet it or grab right. it. <laughs> They're just ignoring the pigeons and they've adapted to the environment, right? I'm noticing that about the magpies here in, in Boulder. They come into the backyard mm -hmm. and they walk right up to my dog. I mean, yeah. so- Yeah, they've adapted. And so that's, right. that's why culture and environment and interactions all play a role on dog behavior. And if we start to recognize that, we can help our dogs here much more. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I see a movie here, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> this is Love Dog, the movie. With I'm seeing the billboard now right on Sunset Boulevard. I just see it. And Mike is going to make a documentary for us on these dogs. That's going to go country <laughs> it's, it's a, to country it, filming means. The way you're talking about it, and I can envision it because I've seen it. We did a photo essay on it, but I've also seen it in other people. I've seen it in Mexico. I was you know recently in Mexico, so I know. It's kind of a beautiful thing. The way everybody coexists. I think that's the word I was looking mm -hmm. for. The, yeah. the, the dogs are in the community. They're in the culture. The people care for them. And it's like a, a traffic mix in a way. And it yeah. works out really well. Yeah. Well, and Mike, I don't know if you've seen this. 
I was just thinking about a lot of these populations I've seen, they're really good at what I might think of as ritualized aggression, like these little displays and these little scuffles where nobody's really getting injured. There's not any Mm -hmm. of these really severe bites that we see in our careers where we're going, holy cow, that was a level four or a level five bite. And you're whoa, you know, what's going on here? Because those dogs are often, you know, working through those scenarios and- here, it's like those first incidents, we become very reactive. And sometimes a lot mm-hmm. of the ways we react to those incidents seem like they compound and escalate mm-hmm. how the dog feels the next time. And I, I guess I'm thinking and kind of moving into the those different techniques that people use is a lot of the human reaction to aggression. Like say my earlier example, they have the baby Baby's in the home. The first time the dog shows teeth or growls at the baby, what's a caring parent thinking? Oh my God, the dog's going to eat the baby. I've mm-hmm. got to, I've got to tell the dog stop doing that. I've, I've got to suppress or punish that behavior. And a lot of times that ends up making it a lot worse. I mean, why do you think it's such a slippery slope when people start punishing or, you know, a popular word people use is correcting behavior when you hear that kind yeah. of stuff? When it comes to those first displays of aggression, things like growling and baring teeth, where mm-hmm. the very purpose of that behavior might be to avoid an actual conflict. I think it comes back to the society or the cultural uh, approach to changing behavior, uh, whether it's humans or dogs. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we live in a society where we react big to small things, right? We, we see it all the time. Social media, be the mainstream media, you know, politics, everything. We're always reacting big, and I throw a big hammer down onto that small nail if there's a problem. And that's the difference between again when you see streeties or street dogs, they learn how to navigate little conflicts with little behavior, right? So, right, you get a street dog that's walking by another dog's like cafe, and like they'll just give each other a look and be like, the one dog will be like, hey, this is mine, and the other dog's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll go on my way. So it's good conflict resolution, as Mark was talking about earlier, and it keeps it. I subtle, love that, you yeah. know. And so they don't yeah. need to go to the big stuff. Like if Mark right. and I were having a disagreement about, like, hey, you owe me five bucks, he's got a couple choices, you know. I'm like, hey, Mark, you, you got that five dollars? You owe me. And he can be like, yeah, oh, yeah, sure. Or oh, can I get it to you next week? So it's low level of response. Or he could be like, you know what? I've had enough of you. Ask me, and then pull out a knife and like that's the overt level that. The dogs, unfortunately, in some populations here, learn because it's contagious. Drew, you obviously shared my budget with Mike before this interview. <laughs> right. They've learned, you know, they got to pull out a knife first. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He'll just blog about it or tweet about it. So then we can start passiveaggressivedog.com. Right. right. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I love the, I love the street dog, stray dog conversation. I just do. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work and what you're doing and what you're passionate about and, and, and doing right now? Sure. The easiest way to find me is aggressivedog.com. So not dogs, but aggressivedog.com. And all of my stuff is on there, my courses, webinars. I run the uh, the Bitey End of the Dog podcast is also, there's a link for that there, my social media accounts. So I'm kind of a little bit everywhere <laughs> these days. So yeah, if you want to see Mike cozying up to street dogs, go on Instagram. If you want to learn about dogs, go on aggressivedog.com. 
if you want to hear more great conversations about aggression. I, I love the podcast. You've got such great guests on there and, you know, it, it's awesome for both industry professionals and dog owners who might be st struggling with these things. So you're just, you're just a beacon of hope, my friend. And I, I just thank you. I appreciate that. And I second everything that Drew said. I started out by saying it was an honor to have you on thank and you. to have you with us. And I, I feel it and mean it even more now. Do you have anything that you want to sign off with in this? I just feel like this is such an important area. Are there any parting words you want for our listeners to, I'm sure a lot yeah. of people are dealing with aggression. I think even if it wasn't aggression, just remember that, you know, it's, it's all about the journey and not the destination with your dog because it's short, it's going to be a short, short trip, right? Dogs don't live very long. And so as much as our dogs can frustrate us sometimes or tear up our favorite pair of, you know, shoes or be on the floor or well, maybe bite Uncle Bob right it's those are just moments during the journey and there's it's, it's important to look at the bright moments in your journey along that road because you're taking it along with your dog and you may be the only person in your dog's life that they get to go on that journey with their one life so that's that's my takeaway with uh working you know aggression cases for so many years we can sometimes always focus on the bad the two or three bites out of the entire dog's life when there's so many other bright moments in that journey so Remember the journey uh, because that destination is going to come before you know it. Well, that's our show. Thank you for listening. But before we go, I want to give one final shout out to our sponsor, Fig and Tyler, who make these fantastic dog treats. These are the ones I use in my training programs and with my own dog. If you're a pet parent and you want to get your hands on these premium treats that the pro use, they have a special offer just for our listeners. Go to figandtyler.com now and put love dog in the promo code at checkout and you'll receive 10% off your first order. They've also got an amazing program for pet professionals. If you want to sign up, go to the pet pros tab at figandtyler.com and hit join program. Make sure you put Love Dog in the referral tab. You're going to love the pro perks, and these are the best treats you can buy on the market. Go to F-I-G-A-N-D-T-Y-L-E-R.com. Check them out. Okay, so that's our show for today, and I think it was a beautiful show with Mike Shikashio. Thank you, Mike. I'm so glad that we were able to talk about street dogs toward the end of the conversation. I always love that topic. I love the way these street dogs fit into different cultures. Sometimes they're urban, sometimes they're more out in the country, but wherever they are, they seem to integrate with the people. The people love and take care of them. It's a really beautiful thing. And in fact, on lovedog.com, if you go to the photographs tab and then the photo essays, you'll see that we've done four essays, four photo essays, and one of them is the Dogs of India. And I brought a photographer in from over there in Punjab, and he went between Punjab and New Delhi, and he got some great images, and there are some great examples of street dogs doing exactly what we're talking about. And in an upcoming episode, we're going to talk about the Comfort Dog Program in Uganda, where these street dogs are taken off the streets and they're used to rehabilitate and comfort 
survivors of the war over there in Uganda. And that's going to be a great conversation as well. So lots coming up on that topic. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you found it helpful, you could follow us on your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Instagram at News is our handle. You could buy us a $4 cup of coffee. The link to ko-ficoffee.com is in our show notes. And I think the best thing you could do to help us out would be to just tell a friend, send the link, share the link, and let them know we're out here doing this. Okay, thank you. Until next time, take care. Just growl and err. The way everybody's just integrated into the, it's a cultural thing. Yeah. (laughs) Hank. Hank. We can edit this out.